0: Hey, this is Al from OMUG Comics. Make sure to check out Lenny Vernon's Badass Trucker. You can get your hands on it at just about any Omaha and Lincoln comic book store. Otherwise, follow OMUG Comics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for our website, link, subscribe, and like, and make sure you keep on trucking. Greetings from Tromaville. I'm Lloyd Kaufman, president of Troma Entertainment, creator of the toxic Avenger and I tell you when the trauma team and I are not making those great movies like hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm or Tales from the Crapper, we spend all our time listening to moose's Monster mash. There's a guy named Paul. I mean you will learn so much. It's the most entertaining and educational uh, uh, activity in the entire uh, Twitter, in the entire ethos. Take it from Uncle Lloyd. Moose brings to me a very red Christmas with Steve Redzinski. Welcome horror hounds to the Christmas Eve episode of Moose's 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. I'm your host Moose and now that the children are tucked nicely in their beds and Santa's on his way. Let's dig into some nice Christmas horror from Red Christmas, *Miaui Chronicles, and Carousel. Our guest is Jack of All Trades, Mr. Steve Brzezinski.
1: Uh, how are you doing tonight, Moose?
0: I'm doing fantastic.
1: It is a quiet, quiet Christmas Eve here. Uh, the snow is settled. Not too much, but there's snow on the ground. Um, everyone got their gifts. Everyone's happy. The lights are the only thing illuminating my room. That's a lie. I have all my lights on. Um, but I'm having a great time.
0: All right. Now this is completely unrelated because nobody can see what I see. Is that a giant cat skeleton on your couch?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so I didn't put them, uh, away. I don't usually do that till the complete end of the season, but that is Bernard, the human skeleton who is leaning against ginger who is a werewolf skeleton they come off from halloween and then they go back down into the basement when the months start to warm up
0: i was just like where do you get a life-size cat man (laughs) target like that is awesome (laughs) so you know as i mentioned before we got rolling i I wanted to get together with you because you have a a pretty good Christmas horror repertoire.
1: It seems that way. It wasn't it. It wasn't planned, but it also makes total sense, because I love horror and I love Christmas, so I guess it was just kind of a matter of time. Um, although I did start relatively soon, now that, you know, it's so... Now that I've been doing this for 10 years, in retrospect, I made Red Christmas at, like, the 40% mark of my career, and then I kept doing it.
0: That leads me into one of the things I wanted to ask about you know as a horror fan and just you know somebody who likes the theme movies really mm-hmm. um i know for me when it comes to like christmas horror what attracts me to them is the combination of taking what's supposed to be this innocent time of the year and you know it, it's it's christmas it's family time it's innocence and light and you murder it up you Mm -hmm. know it's bloody and it's like halloween you expect murder and mayhem you don't expect that for christmas and i think that's what makes christmas horror so interesting but i wanted to get you know your opinion on it now being you know being somebody from the other side you know the creative side you know what, what what's the appeal
1: I mean, honestly, I just said it. I, it's two things that I like, so why not combine them? No one can stop me. I'm the one in charge. I'm the boss. You can make as many movies about Christmas as you want when you're writing and directing them yourself. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, Red Christmas specifically, like that at the time was kind – that was totally a I need to make something for the conventions because I don't have a new movie this year. Honestly, that's what that was. Um Because the Kickstarter for the first Care's Hell had failed, and I, you know, we released Captain Z, but technically that wasn't really my movie. I wrote it, I directed it, but that was Zoltan Zilai's movie that he produced and co-wrote. Like, that was his film. I didn't have a film to sell myself. And without Care's Hell, I kind of felt like I was stuck. So I was thinking and thinking, uh, and an idea just sort of hit me. It's like, oh, what if I make a movie about a girl that kills and eats men? Fuck it, let's do that. I don't see enough lady villains. I like lady villains. And then it turned into not that, obviously, you've seen the film, it's not about eating, and so the idea evolved in like, why is she doing this? What's her end goal? What's her motivation? Um, and one of the other decisions I made was, okay, well, I don't really like found footage movies. I don't really like torture gore movies. What would my version of those genres be like? So then I combined those both into one thing, which is why You know, it's a video diary. There's a lot of emphasis on the torture, on the pain, um, with different motivations, in my opinion. That was my little flavor. That was my different taste. Same with the found footage. Since it's a video diary, there's a whole lot less shaky cam and a whole lot more tripod usage. Yeah. That was important to me. And then as I was developing it, I was just kind of found myself saying, you know what? Why not make it a Christmas-related film, too? That way I can also make it that much more unique. I can use Christmas gadgets, I can use nutcrackers, I can use icicles, I can use Christmas lights. That would be a way more fun way to do it and make it a little bit different from other found footage or other torture horror movies. And But really, the nail in the coffin that made me make that decision was that I knew there was a a, a white Christmas movie, and I knew there was a black Christmas movie, <laughs> and I searched everywhere I was like, how the fuck is there no Red Christmas? How is there no movie called Red Christmas? I have to make this now, and it's a good fucking thing I did, because fucking D Wallace started a movie <laughs> the following year called Red Christmas that is forever Red Christmas Roman numeral 2 on IMDb, and that's because of me.
0: <laughs> I to say, yeah, it's White Christmas, Black Christmas, and at the same time, apparently the stars aligned, yeah. Red Christmas. <laughs> It's like wow.
1: What are the odds? There are several films in my library that only exist because I thought of a cool title and realized no one has used it yet. I really I like
0: the simplicity of Red Christmas. And what I mean by that is it's it's very direct. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you don't get sidetracked, you know, as a viewer, you don't get sidetracked with anything else. It's you have your killer and your victim. There's obviously the killer's psycho side story, but that all gets woven into what's happening on screen every time. So you can't really get sidetracked with anything else. You have to focus on what's on the screen.
1: Well, it was important to me for this to be, Tara is the protagonist of the story. She's the villain, but she is the protagonist. It is her story. So it would have been completely... Frivolous if I had anything in the movie that wasn't just what Tara was doing and experiencing and thinking.
0: Yeah, you know, and I love the idea of I'm filming this because I want this to be my legacy. I want people to know who I am when I'm eventually caught. And I want them to get my story right. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, she's crazy, but it's something you don't you haven't really seen in horror movies. Mm-hmm. So that was a nice, refreshing addition to the genre.
1: I appreciate that. Well, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit more. Without question, Red Christmas is my most serious film. Like, I've I've had fans that, like, bought and watched all my movies straight through, and then when they got to Red Christmas, they weren't expecting that. Uh, obviously, there's still Steve Rizinski in the movie, you know. Tara is far more Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone than she is Eli Roth's Hostel, for example. Yeah. Um. But in terms of, like, emotional outpouring and, like, seriousness, and because of that, I did do a decent amount of research. I'm far from an expert. I'm not claiming that I fucking spent months researching this goddamn movie that I shot in three days that I literally made to sell at conventions. But I did do research in terms of, like, what multiple murderers are like. And there's always this, like, there's often a consistent thing. You know, there's some sort of trigger where they went from being a person to a monster. They're still human a person to a monster there's oftentimes not always but oftentimes the sort of level of narcissism that they're better than others because of what they're able to do and how they're able to do it so i felt that made sense with the terror being like uh, i know i'm gonna be a fucking star if i get caught so let's make sure this is correct before anyone
0: gets it wrong <laughs> if you're gonna tell my story you're gonna tell my story fucking right
1: right and of course the whole thing with you know her motivation of why she's doing the torturing the simple fact that when fbi profilers are profiling a multiple multiple murderer they look at the damage done to a body what's being done to the body how it's being done to the body and the vast majority of the time depending on that damage they'll assume it's a sadist and they assume sadists are men so even though tara gets nothing out of what she fucking does she literally just does it so she can get away with killing longer
0: Oh yeah, there was one scene I, I legit got a belly laugh out of. And it's the scene. It was the trivia scene. Oh yes, I, I laughed at it because the real life debate got brought into the movie. I've seen this debate take almost the same violent turns that it took in the movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and listeners, what it is is terror. The killer asks the victim, "What was the name?" Of the building that Bruce Willis was in in Die Hard, and the victim says Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie, and the killer loses her shit and goes on to defend that Die Hard is one hundred percent a Christmas movie. You know, and it this debate will rank, yeah <laughs> with excellent precision starts rattling off just you know it's the soundtrack is christmas it's set at christmas the decorations are christmas everything is christmas this is a christmas movie and she's getting madder and madder and madder this is a debate that will rage on forever and so to see it play out in a murder scene was just hilarious
1: i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it and you got a good laugh out of it I'm pretty sure it was just the case. I think that year in particular, I kept seeing the debate so much that I just put it into the film just because it was in my mind so fresh.
0: As soon as Thanksgiving's over, that's the first thing that pops up, is people start talking about Christmas movies. and It's like, I'm going to watch Die Hard. Die Hard's not a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. Oh, go fuck yourself. You know, every year. It happens every year. Listen to my friends have the same argument. And sometimes you just want to stab them. <laughs> So to see somebody actually do that, it was kind of fun to watch.
1: You were able to connect with Terra there.
0: Right. It's like, I, I get it. I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> you also have the Meowie Chronicles. Where did those come from?
1: Well, it came from the fact that Carousel got picked up by a distributor in very early 2017, but they outright said they weren't going to be releasing it for like two years because of the backlog of stuff that they had to release. Um And, you know, you can't really make another larger budget film when you can't even sell the one you just made yet. You know, that's a tall order for investors or fans or what have you. So I focused a bit on the podcast that I had with my friend at the time, Bill Murphy. He is still my friend, the podcast at the time. I misspoke, just to clarify.
0: (laughs) I kept the podcast, dumped the friend. It's okay. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, Movie films with Bill and Steve. Now it's just movie films with Steve. Um, no. But so we got to a point where we were watching multiple Talking Animal holiday movies for the podcast, and I kept on losing my fucking mind because they were all so milk toast and shitty and just Home Alone rip-offs, They're all fucking Home Alone ripoffs. They're all Home Alone ripoffs. And but no creativity, no originality, no like jokes or identity. Just ripoffs of Home Alone. But also they clearly all cost like a half a million dollars because of the mansions that they were renting and the people that they were getting to be in the movies. And like they were ABC family films. They just wanted something for TV and fucking – and I was just getting so angry at how uninteresting and boring they all were that I said – To hell with it, I have a cat and $500. Um, Also, no one has made a movie called A Meowy Christmas. This has been on every piece of merchandise I've seen for years, and no one's made a movie called that yet. Well, here we go. And so I made a Home Alone ripoff called A Meowy Christmas with my cat and my rat, Um, except since I am an insane person and Bill Murphy embraces my insanity, we wrote a way weirder script than any of the other Home Alone ripoffs, and that's why it is about a cat that watches Alex Jones' videos all day, every day, because only a cat is stupid enough to believe what he says, and thus she thinks that the burglars breaking into her home are lizard aliens, because she <laughs> knows the truth. The rat thinks she is insane. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was super easy to shoot, because the majority of the movie is my cat, my rat, in my house, or it's me with, like, one other person. And that's it. Plus the two burglars. So... The first day of shooting, when I was just shooting all the stuff with my cat, Gizmo Cat, and my rat at the time, Kita, it was like I spent three hours shooting literally everything I needed from them for the whole feature. And I was just like, is this how fucking easy it is? <laughs> and, you know, so we made that. That was probably the only movie that I made for fun, as opposed to I need to make this to make money. Uh, it did really well. On Prime Streaming, back when Prime didn't pay an insulting amount of money, which currently it pays one cent per hour streamed. Guess Jeff, Jeff Bezos really needed to go to space. Um, <laughs> but it did really well on Prime Streaming, and it also started to do well on physical even before I started to do any conventions or anything. So I've always had a itch to make a PG horror movie because I love PG horror. So uh, Miami Christmas came out November. 2017, and then A Meowy Halloween came out September 2018. Less than a year, we wrote, made, cut, and released Part Two, Miaoie Halloween, and that one I love. I love Miaoie Halloween. I think that one's still my favorite of the series. Uh, we put like 54 horror references into A Miaoie Halloween, um, ranging from Sutter Kane to Monster Squad to Roy Burns from Friday Five. I fucking packed that movie full. And that one was the best financial decision I've ever made in my life. That movie has outsold almost everything else in my entire library, almost (laughs) more than the Carousels. It's crazy. I guess there was this unsung batch of horror fans that have been just wanting a talking cat really badly, (laughs) and I delivered. And then, you know, those did so well that at first I wasn't sure if I was going to continue because we lost Kita the rat who plays Chuck, and the Chuck Whiskers relationship to me was like really the soul of the first two movies and i wasn't sure if i can continue without that but they did so well and they were so cheap and so easy that i felt stupid if i didn't at least take advantage of that a little bit more so then i made the decision okay i'm gonna make three and four and call it there i'm gonna film three and four at the same time and fortunately since we're already we, we basically have a character story arc throughout the whole series where everything fucking matters but one of the things that we do is the first movie is almost all cat focused The second movie is a little bit more human-slash-animal focused. Then the third film, the lead is still the cat, but in the human's body, so people are getting used to seeing the owner more, even though it's still the cat. And then the fourth film is actually way more about the owner and a lot less about the cat, but it completely makes sense in my personal opinion. I think everything is earned and everything gets delivered on. So part three was St. Patrick's Day, basically Freaky Friday, where the cat and the owner switch bodies. And then I didn't tell anyone that part four existed, even though I filmed them both at the same time. So three ended on a cliffhanger, and the post-credit scene is what revealed that part four was coming later the same year. <laughs> and as one last fuck you to the franchise that spawned this, because the the franchise that finally that broke the straw of the camel's back, the one that put me on this journey was my disdain. For The Dog Who Saved Christmas, or Bill <laughs> Murphy calls it The Zeus Cinematic Universe, because that's the name of the dog, Zeus, and there's like eight of those movies. He saves multiple holidays, but they kept double, triple, quadruple dipping into Christmas specifically, so I laughed at the fact, because it's The Dog Who Saved Christmas, then it's like The Dog Who Saved Halloween, The Dog Who Saved Summer Vacation, The Dog Who Saved Easter, The Dog Who Saved Christmas Vacation. So that's why part four of Meowie is called A Meowie Christmas Vacation. As one last fuck you to Zeus and ABC Family and just that (laughs) boring, uninteresting series that they've wasted so much money and time on.
0: (laughs) I love it. I also want to talk about Super Task Force 1. Yes. Now, I'd imagine we both grew up fans of Power Rangers.
1: Uh, First, I was a fan of Ultraman. Well, yeah. Then then Power Rangers, then Guyver. Then I discovered Super Sentai.
0: So, in your case, it's just a natural progression to wanting to make this movie. What was it like, then, having been a fan of this, essentially, your whole life, to turn around and make your uh, own?
1: I mean, it felt right. Like, it felt natural. I, honestly, to this day, am and, and still very proud of that script and proud of that movie, even though it was, like, a $2,000 passion project. Um, but I, I felt that, as a fan and as a creator, I was able to really... Deliver on what I like from the genre in that movie with our limited budget and resources, obviously. But the the jokes, the lightness, the silliness of the tone, but also an actual story, and actual characterization, which is much more the Super Sentai part than, say, the very early Saban Power Rangers. Power Rangers got a better with that. Don't get me wrong. I still love Power Rangers. But it was definitely important to me to, like, let's have a real story. Let's have lore that matters. Yeah. And let's have this whole world. Um, which is why Super Task Force is the only one of my movies that take place on Earth 2. All of my other movies take place on the same, in the same world, but Super Task Force 1 had to be elsewhere just because of how big everything was and what the threats were and what the team was. You know, There's no way a fucking carousel horse is murdering 50 people a year without this mega super team showing up at least once and solving the problem. Right. So there's a lot of fun with it. Uh, There's a lot of little homages in the movie that a lot of people don't seem to get. Uh, For one example, like, and I've said this in a couple other interviews when it's come up, but people don't talk about Super Task Force that much these days. Uh, A lot of people think I made myself the Green Ranger to be like the super cool Green Ranger from Mighty Morphin, you know, Tommy. Yeah. When, no, I made myself the Green Ranger because most of the time the Green Ranger is the comedy dipshit ranger. Like Mighty Morphin is the only time the Green Ranger was the cool one. Yeah, and Ninja Storm. Um, so that's why I'm green because I wanted to be the funny guy. So I was like, oh, it makes sense to be green. There we go, boom. That's where my headspace was.
0: So yeah, Tommy was really the only, like you said, the only cool, like badass Green Ranger. Otherwise, yeah. if you switch over to, I think it was, I can't really think of which series. It was the one when they were going through time. Um, time Force. Yeah, Time Force. That that Green Ranger was the comedy relief. Mm-hmm. And a couple other times in the series, different series, yeah, same thing. RPM
1: things. Ziggy's the funniest one. Even you know, you go to Super Sentai, it's the same thing. You know, Go Kaiju, the Green Ranger, was the dipshit. And that's what I like. That's that's the Ranger I would want to play if yeah. I was in Power Rangers. Is the funny one
0: being the comedic relief. You you, you get you, you get a, li- a lot more free reign with the character. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. you don't have to be stiff. You don't have to. You, you don't have to be the. Badass, You don't have to be the smart guy. You can just go in, cut loose, and have fun. Exactly. I feel like we've kind of buried the lead here a little bit. You know, we we, we both mentioned it. Let's dive into uh, the carousels. Now, carousel horses on their own are creepy as hell. Now, you have a movie where these creepy-ass horses kill. What in the hell went through your head that said yeah this is what i want to do
1: oh it wasn't my head it was actually the head of Aline isley the co-creator she was the one that came up with the title she was the one that came up with she came to me with the sentence, and steve we should make a movie we should make a movie about a uh, a movie called carousel and it's about a killer carousel horse wait no killer carousel unicorn end quote and i was signed on uh, she used to also work at an amusement park where people abuse the ride. So that's where Duke's motivation came from of just getting abused by the shitty kid. So he breaks free and wants to hunt the kid down. And then I started taking the reins with the script writing and the lore and the world building when it came to like the Nazi connections or the magic stuff. Um the gags of Duke always using weapons because I like Friday the thirteenth when Denver, Jason is using a bunch of different shit instead of just one weapon or no weapons the whole time. But if you, if you want to know about, you know. The mindset that created the concept. I'm definitely the wrong person because it was not my original idea. Hell, but Although she will, Aline herself will say, I wrote the vast majority of both of these movies. Like 80%, she'll say, I wrote 80% of these movies. It's a fact that they wouldn't exist if Aline didn't think of this idea in the shower.
0: <laughs> Just sitting there. These horses are creepy. they would make a fun killer. Yeah, let's do it.
1: See, she's actually on the flip side. Uh, carousel is her favorite part of the parks, of any parks that she's in, because of how beautiful she finds the carousel horses to be. Because of all the intricate uh, modeling they have to do, all the detailing, the paint job. She's a fucking nerd when it comes to carousel, like, rides. Uh, it's nuts.
0: We must go to different uh, rides, because all the ones I go to are, like, they haven't been updated in paint in, like, 20 years. And... Oh, that sucks. Like... <laughs> These look like they could murder you.
1: (laughs) All the ones I've been to are pristine.
0: Like These look like they should be coming to life and murdering you. (laughs) So, how fun was it to write essentially a carnival horror?
1: I mean, it was as fun as any of my other horror. You know, I write a lot of my horror the same way, especially when I'm trying to make a more straightforward horror. And I put that in fucking air quotes because it's about a killer carousel horse and none of my shit is normal. Uh, Sorry, Unicorn. Um, I, you know, I come up with a basic plot, motivations of the killer, even if I don't reveal that to the audience yet. Uh, then I come up with a list of fucking cartoon characters that I find funny, and I just place them into enough situations where the pacing makes sense. And if the, if the pace, if I write the whole story and the pacing doesn't make sense, then I take a look to see what I can do. So like in Karis Hell, originally the the first scene of Lori and Larry at home with their mother worked was not in the movie. They just showed up directly in the park and also the picnic scene, which I call the Friday the 13th 6th picnic scene because it's basically the same fucking thing and the same motivation. I need some more kills in here.
0: So I literally <laughs> just took that idea.
1: That wasn't in the scene either, but yet the the scene with Laurie and Larry and her and their mother led into the mid credit scene with Laurie and Larry's mother being another great gag and actually leads into Miss Lawrence, Laurie and Larry's mother being a lead main character in Carousel 2. And I literally just originally came up with that character on a whim because I needed to get the audience to know the two leads better. It's weird how writing and filmmaking happens sometimes. I I had the basic story idea for Carousel 2. Alina and I both did. When we were shooting Carousel 1, we knew the sequel was going to be about Duke and his son. We knew that. We knew we were going to get more into Duke's backstory. We knew who the villain was going to be. Lori's mother was never part of that conversation until after I already wrote that her entire scene into the film and then it just made sense.
0: Nice. While we are talking about your uh, creative process, what tips would you offer to any budding independent filmmakers and writers out there to getting their works completed?
1: A, just fucking do it. Uh, I know that sounds bullshit, but I know way too many people that have been writing the same script for years, and there is no reason for that. Uh, you will never attain perfection. You'll never be this, like, world-renowned author if you just finish this one story. Because, you know what, you're going to finish that one story, and you're going to learn from it. Completing it matters more than consistently workshopping it and going back and back and back and back and back and never finishing it and never releasing it. Um, the second thing I would say is write what you want. Don't completely limit yourself just because you have low budget, but at the same time, definitely write realistically. It's one thing to say, oh, okay, so this scene takes place in an amusement park, even though you may not know if you have the budget for an amusement park yet. Because you might be able to finagle something. You might be able to make something look like that. So write it, and if you can go big later, go big. And if you can't go big, then when you get into the sense of making it, then you can collapse it and make it smaller and rework it then. But don't go so big that you will never be able to afford it, like, say, writing a fucking space sci-fi when you've never made a movie for even a $1,000, never mind the million you would need to build a set and the fucking crew to build the set and all the CG you would need to make it look like space. Keep things in mind of what you can actually accomplish without completely handicapping yourself as that holding you back.
0: Well, with that said, has there been a time through any of your movies where you've kind of written yourself into a corner, and then you get to shooting, and you're like, well, can't do that, so now we have to dial it back and change it up to fit more of what we have? Nope. <laughs> <You're> like, nope.
1: <laughs> no, honestly, no, I have never run into that. I have, in conversations with producers that don't understand what actually making movies are like... I have had to tell them to pump the brakes on ideas, like Captain Z and the Terror of Leviathan was originally about Captain Z fighting a town of zombies. That was the producer's idea, and I said to Zoltan, like, Zoltan, do you have, like, $20,000 just for the extras? Of course you fucking don't, so let's just, let's make it smaller, and that's why I talked to him to let's make him like deadites. That way we can have, like, a family of five demons, but they can talk, be entertaining, and that's how we make the movie a feature length as opposed to a hundred fucking people and all of the makeup and all of the setups and everything. That's way too big. And, you know, I'm in the pre-production for a new movie called Shingles, the movie, which is like an R-rated Goosebumps. It's an anthology. And it's a similar thing, you know, it's based off these guys' um, Authors and Dragons. They have a book series called Shingles, and they adapted five of the stories into a feature script. But they didn't write for a movie. They wrote for a book where anything can happen. So I'd be reading the script and then being like on a Discord call with them being like, guys, like, okay, so this scene, this one scene, which is like three minutes long, would cost 5 thousand dollars, because you want to fucking break glass, and you want 20 zombies coming through the windows, and it has to be in a store? We aren't fucking doing this. Like, even if you were offering the money, like, oh, it's not a problem, that's just a waste of money. Or like the original middle story, which I loved. But it took place completely in a working amusement park with roller coasters and everything, and it had a bunch of characters and multiple killers, and a bunch of kills, and it was awesome! I fucking loved it! I would have loved to make it, but then I explained to them, this... 20 minutes of your movie costs more than all of Kara's hell. So if you actually want to make a feature-length movie, we need to replace this story. Unless you have all the extra money laying around for us to go nuts with.
0: Say, you got the extra money, let's do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, So, so the story was replaced with something smaller. Something I still like, but definitely more financially viable. So it is thanks to me doing it, and I think the reason why I have so much of that skill is because of all the years of me making garbage bullshit backyard movies. That like I kind of am very self aware of my limitations, what I'm capable of, and what we would be able to do, and what we can push the envelope with to go further than we have before. But I've I, again, like to this point, I have never written myself into a corner where I came up with like a very specific idea that we just couldn't do
0: at all nice so so you've managed to train yourself pretty well of like nope i know my limitations i know i think so i i know where financially and creative you know and through creativity wise i can prosper
1: yes exactly that's awesome it's all about playing to your strengths that's the thing you know i don't like acting but when i am forced to act by a fucking producer who fucking forces me to goddamn fucking act <laughs> Or it's a very lower budget film like the Meowies where I'm making the whole thing for a few hundred dollars. Of course, I'm going to play a character in it to save money. Yeah. So when I do, I'm going to be a comedy actor because that's what I'm best at. Like I'm not going to try to make myself the super cool badass. Even when Zoltan made me be arguably the most intelligent badass character in Captain Z, I still played the character way more quirky and weird than what was originally intended just because it made more sense for me as a performer.
0: Oh, yeah. Who are your biggest horror influences? Like, what got you into horror as a kid?
1: I mean, what got me into horror as a kid was the very first movie I saw at the age of three years old was A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I watched The Making of A Nightmare on Elm Street and thought everything was so fucking cool. I just thought it was so cool how they did effects and how they did the setups and, like, monsters were cool. That's what got me into horror.
0: Um,
1: so, you know, I, there's plenty, plenty of nights where little Steve Jr. was... Programming the VCR to record the next Friday the 13th or Child's Play or Hellraiser movie off of USA at 1am <laughs> when I was asleep so that I can wake up the next day and watch it. For influences, it's like, um, I mean, the reason why I decided specifically to be a filmmaker above any other sort of creative um, position is seeing Army of Darkness when I was 12. Hmm. I love Army of Darkness. It made me so happy and giddy, and it's so silly, and it has so much of its own identity. It's unlike anything else that I'd seen up to that point. And I loved it, so that's what made me say, fuck yeah, I'm going to be a filmmaker. So because of that, I read a lot of books by Sam Raimi or Bruce Campbell. A um, lot of inspiration from those guys. Robert Rodriguez, in terms of like how much he does by himself, but also his very comic book style, Influenced me a lot growing up. Uh, As an actor, Jim Varney influences me a lot, probably even more than Bruce Campbell. I love the way he always played his characters, his facial expressions, how over the top he was. The the live-action cartoon. Well, and we wouldn't even
0: have Christmas if Ernest didn't save it. So
1: yes, yes.
0: Now, before we wrap this up, if you had unlimited budget, unlimited resources. What's one movie you would just kill to make?
1: Okay. Well, with unlimited budget, first thing I do is I hire Steve Brzezinski as the director with a salary of $100 billion. <laughs> um, that's a very important to the creative process here. Trust me. Trust me. Um, but honestly, my dr- if I ha- could do fucking anything and the sky was the limit, my dream movie has always been a live-action Ronin Warriors or people in Japan may call it as Samurai Troopers. I have always had this very specific idea of being able to put the entire first season into a singular two-and-a-half-hour feature film and do the whole arc with all the characters, all their individual stories, pat, 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 almost episodic, all within this feature, and then having the big climax against Emperor Talpa and the white armor and fucking ending it there. Dude,
0: that would be fucking epic
1: that would if i had unlimited budget and was given the keys to the kingdom steve you can make whatever you want it would be that
0: now see that'd be an indiegogo campaign that i think would skyrocket
1: (laughs) i i have a feeling that it would it would be like those video game success failures where i think it would be one of the top earning indiegogos of all time and yet still not be enough to actually make the fucking movie. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, that would definitely be, like, that would be probably, like, a $200 million movie, and I'm even speaking from the, the independent perspective where I can do a lot of shit without, say, Teamsters and, like, do shit quicker and faster than a major Hollywood production simply based on locations and costumes and number of characters and stuff like that. That would be a very expensive film.
0: It'd be the Energizer uh, Indiegogo. I'd just have to keep going and going and going. <laughs> yeah. Where can listeners follow you and keep up to date on like social media stuff So and keep up to date with all your projects?
1: Well, obviously, my uh, store is the best place to buy all of my physical media, Silverspotlifefilms.com. Uh That's where you can get all of my DVDs, all of my Blu-rays. That's where the Carousel Deck Building game is. That's where posters are. Uh, there's a 10-year anniversary vinyl album. That has a bunch of the music from the past 10 years of my career, which is surreal and cool. Um, So that's the best way to support me, is the physical sales. Uh, The following option, if you don't want to buy 12 fucking movies, I understand. That's a lot of money, especially given what the past couple of years have been. Um, But I do have my own digital subscription service, and that is stevebuster.com. Where for as low as like two ninety nine a month, you get access to my entire library, all of my movies, all the bonus features from those movies, a bunch of movies that I don't sell anymore because I'm ashamed of them, but fans ask for them so they're on the service, like the Wolfster movies or Basic Slaughter or, or even Fucking Legends, Jesus Christ. Where there's also an exclusive feature where I just get shit based and insult legends all night. Um <laughs> But there's also exclusives that we shot for the service, such as short films like the 20 minute short, you know, Lost in Cleveland. There's a lot, there's over 30 hours worth of content on Steve Buster for as low as three bucks a month. And the only reason why I'm giving away so much stuff for such a low price is because, by comparison, as I said earlier in the interview, 300 people would need to watch one of my movies on Prime Video that I own the rights to, never mind if a distributor gets it. In order to equal one person subscribing to Steve Buster for one month. So Steve Buster is my compromise for people that don't want to buy movies and just want to watch them digitally. Even though it's still a lot less than I would be earning otherwise, it's still a lot more than I'd be earning if you just stream it. <laughs> However, if you don't want to pay any money yet, if you want to try my stuff out, I do understand. You know, please don't pirate. That'd be nice if you don't do that. So streaming legally is an option and a lot of my stuff is on Tubi TV. I would say Tubi over the others. Tubi is ads based, so they actually do pay creators a bit more than, say, what Amazon pays when you watch included with Prime. So, Google, you know, Google my name, search my name on Tubi, you'll come up with Carousel, The Meowies, Red Christmas is on Tubi, Super Task Force is on Tubi, Everyone Must Die is on Tubi. That one's a bit rough, though. Save that for last. Um,. And that way you can try me out. And then if you like my stuff, you can then decide to buy some physical copies or subscribe to Steve Buster or what have you. If you just want to follow my social media, I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty sure it is just at Steve Rzinski. I am on Instagram. That one is at Dark Mullet. So if you want to see me wear spandex and be a thirst trap, Instagram is the place to go. There's also a lot of pictures of my cat there. My cat and my pecs. that's That's what you get on the Instagram. Um... And you can find me on Facebook, Steve Razinski, or, you know, Silver Spotlight Films on Facebook.
0: I will post all those links in the episode description. And listeners, you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. Steve, this has been more than entertaining. It, it really has been fun.
1: I'm glad. I've I've, I've I've had fun, too.
0: It was really fun to just sit back and talk horror and Christmas, Christmas horror, you know, killer unicorns. As the career moves on, we'll get you back on sometime and talk about other projects. Hell, come on, just talk horror movies in general. You know, just because you're a fan of horror. Yes, I am. Listeners, subscribe to his stuff. Buy his stuff. Watch his movies. Tune in tomorrow for the season three premiere of Moose's Monster Mesh. Steve, thanks for coming on.
1: You are very welcome, and I hope everyone at home has had a very merry Christmas.
0: And until next time, horror hounds, mash on. This has been Moose's Monster Mash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. Move <laughs>